uh, parable. That's why I chose that song that played right before it, that song with little hops musically. But here's what I think. I think this is an amazingly comforting parable. And I think as we explore it together this morning, we're going to find that. And the reason I think this is because I think this parable contains the fullness of the good news. The fullness of the gospel is right here in this short little parable that Jesus told. I think more than any other parable, perhaps. And the good news is comforting when we understand the good news. It's incredibly comforting. It comes with great challenge, obviously. But that's the story of grace. The story of grace is a challenging story. Once it has been truly received, grace compels us, demands, if you will, to use that language, that we share it with others. There's the challenge of grace. Let's dive in and find the grace in the details of this difficult parable. And for those of you that weren't here last week, we spent last week looking at the overall context of chapter 18, dealt with some of the very challenging verses that we find there, the statements that Christ made, that will help that prepared us for this parable, but this parable can also prepare us to go and read chapter 18. So if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to spend some time this week on the entire chapter, given what we're going to discover today in this parable. So Jesus begins with a very serious attention grabber. He loves to do this when he's telling parables. He, he'll often say things that will immediately capture the attention of his audience. It's hard for us, so let's break it down. 10,000 talents so we can see what kind of attention grabber this is. A talent was a measurement of weight for precious metals. Gold, silver, etc. This is how they would weigh them. One talent was roughly 60 to 90 pounds. Okay, so that's how much a talent is. One talent, 60 to 90 pounds. So, 10,000 talents, using an average, we'll just average it out at 75 pounds per talent, it was about 750, one talent, 60, 90 pounds, sorry, I'm behind here. 10,000 talents, that is 750,000 pounds, or 375 tons, is what this guy owes. Okay? But, now, depending on what metal we're talking about, one talent was worth about 6,000 denarii. One talent. One talent was worth 6,000 denarii. Okay? So, the guy's debt to the king was 60 million denarii. Now, before you think, well, maybe it was like, you know, a, a currency that was very undervalued, and so maybe that's not much. No. At that time, the average day laborer made a denarii a day, which means it would have taken this guy 164,000 plus years to repay this debt. There's an attention grabber. Okay, so in our day and age, this is like someone saying, and someone owed a debt of $75 trillion. What this is here is what Capon calls radical unrepayability. Radical unrepayability. This cannot be repaid. That's the point of Jesus starting this parable. This cannot be repaid. Now, some scholars suggest this is hyperbole or exaggeration, but I disagree. I completely disagree with that reading of this parable. I think it is dramatic, certainly, but not without substance. I think it is purposeful that Jesus said this. Remember, Jesus used the parabolic method to call into question our understanding of God. So this radical unrepayability is a vital part of that method. Of that method. 
It is in this detail, dramatic as it is, that we can access the greater teaching of this parable. We can access the good news, the comfort of this parable that it's really sharing with us. Snodgrass writes, The parable's intent with the description of the first debt is to achieve maximum effect in understanding the enormity of the king's act of forgiveness. Alright? You see, this whole parable, this whole parable hinges on the servant's lack of understanding of the enormity of the forgiveness the king gave him. And I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ hinges on the same exact thing. Jesus is most skillfully giving us a stunning revelation of the enormity of God's forgiveness and a profound warning of our lack of understanding. A profound warning as we're going to see with this difficult language that is in this parable. This is the same warning and the same reason for the warning that St. Paul will give to the Galatians when we get into that letter. Okay? Consider this. Jesus starts off by telling us the king is very concerned about the debt he is owed. So he's a bookkeeper and the books need to be balanced. He needs to get his accounts in order. This is something Kevin does for his company every week. Right, Kev? Get the accounts in order. And when his servant couldn't repay his debts, this bookkeeper of a king orders severe and just retribution. Sell them all. Sell him and his family and his kids. I don't care. I want to be paid back. He wants restitution. So what's Jesus doing here? What, what is Jesus doing in this description. Certainly not telling us what God is like. We need the entire parable for that. We need the entire Bible for that. But unfortunately, this will get read and bingo, people will tell you, see, that's what God is like. Jesus here is describing the human idea of God. The idea that God is a God of transaction. The kind of God that humanity has been worshipping since the beginning of time. This is why village virgins were sacrificed. Because God demanded transaction. This is the human idea of God. Jesus is setting us up. See, this is the only kind of God this servant knows and understands. Notice carefully verse 26. And this servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. This is not a good prayer. Not. Jesus is not modeling us, modeling for us here the correct way to ask God's forgiveness. This understanding of this verse is vital to the whole parable. And I think this is where the reality of the enormous debt comes in. This is why Jesus used 60 million dinar so that we would not miss the key to the parable that is this verse. The servant remains committed to transacting with the king, just as so many of us remain committed to transacting with God, and it's mostly because we've all been taught to transact with God around this whole forgiveness thing. Here's the problem, and the danger is, this guy thinks it worked. He has no understanding of what the king did. 
He has no understanding of what the king did. He thinks it was his promise to pay back his debt that got him released and forgiven. So he thinks the transaction worked. He has no idea, nor wants to any idea, wants to have any idea of what the king just did for him. None. He's convinced it was his transaction. He promised to pay back the debt. That's why the king forgave him. And this is proven by the way he then acts toward another servant who owes him a measly 100 denarii. See, here's the thing. This guy's not a jerk. He just has really bad theology. And bad theology, when lived out, causes all sorts of bad things. This guy has bad theology. He remains committed to bookkeeping to balance the counts because he wrongly assumes that what just played out between he and the king balanced the counts. But that is not what just played out. This is why it's so important to understand how much debt he owed. 60 million denarii, 164,000 years at common laborers' wages. The radical unrepayability of it all. Do we, the king was obviously not stupid and didn't know the servant couldn't pay him back. Of course he knew the servant, servant couldn't pay him back. The whole point Jesus is making in the story is the same point he made by showing up in the flesh and dying on the cross. It's not about what we do, it's about what God does. Thank God. The king forgave the servant because that is who the king is, a forgiving king. God forgives us because that is who God is, a forgiving God. Look at verse 27. This is a revelation of the king's true character. And it is an explosion of the myth that he is a brutal accountant. What really happened for the king to forgive the servant was the king had to lay aside his interests in his own accounts, his own treasury, and he had to be able to say, well, I'm up 60 million denarii, but it's okay because I love the guy too much to do anything about it. That's the only way this happens. Because that's the truth. The king is out 60 million denarii. He's not getting that back. So, in theological terms, he had to die to his own life so he could bring life to the undeserving servant. And that has to ring a bell because Jesus talks about that all the time and ultimately the incarnation and crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the same revelation of God's true character. The same explosion of the myth that God is a brutal accountant. The entire biblical narrative is trying so hard to explode this myth for us. If we would like. And I know some of us might be thinking, but yeah, this we, we know this. But do we know this? It is ingrained in our system that we have to transact this is why the Old Testament is constantly trying to reveal a God of grace and then humanity brings them right back to being a God of transaction and on and on and on. Yet one of the first things God ever did was say, no, I'm not a God of transaction. Do we remember the account of Abraham and Isaac? That's a beautiful, beautiful story that has sadly, I think, been turned into the story about Abraham's faith, Abraham transacting with God. That's not what that story is about. 
Abraham, it didn't take Abraham much faith. And there was, see, we read that story and we're like, oh my gosh, he's having him kill his son. No, that's, not, that's completely normal at that time. In order for Abraham to even get to the mountain where God told him, he would have gone through this valley where that's all he did in that valley was child sacrifice. But then he gets to the top of the mountain and God says, no, Abraham, never again. And go down from this mountain and let everyone know you did not sacrifice yourself. Because I don't want that. And I never did. I wanted you on top of this mountain to show you I'm not a God of transaction. And this is the biblical narrative. And then Jesus finally shows up and he completes that. He says, No, my father, me, I am God, am not a God of transaction. I will forgive you because I love you. See, this is the whole biblical story. It's the whole eternal human question and a straightforward choice. Do we believe in a God? And here's, I want you to do this for a second. Forget all the great religions. This is not about any of the religions. Forget all the denominations in our own religion. This is not a denominational question. It's not a religion question. Jesus simplified the whole mess when he came and died for us. He simplified everything and brought the eternal question down to one basic question. Do we believe in a God who demands transactions or do we believe in the God Jesus revealed? That's it. That's it. Names aside, religions aside, denominations aside, here is the whole human question in a nutshell that Jesus simplified. Do we believe in a God who demands transactions or do we believe in the God Jesus revealed? And here is where we come face to face with the demands of grace. You see, if this guy in the parable really understood that the king forgave him because the king wanted to, and it was not because of his offer to pay the king back, he could never have acted the way he did. Even an elementary school kid, if told this story, can see that not forgiving a small debt right after being forgiven a massive debt is asinine. Unless he didn't understand what Unless he still thought it was all part of the transaction. His promise to repay God, the king, is what made the king forgive him. If he thought that, that explains why then he turned around and continued to transact with the people below him that owed him stuff. And here's now where it gets real tricky for all of us. All of us. When we imagine a God who is simply transacting with us, and will eventually show himself to be the accountant who demands that all books be balanced, when we imagine a God that somehow our forgiveness is a result of our own doing the right things, or saying the right things, or promising the right things, when we imagine that God, then we too will remain insistent on others treating us the same way if they want our forgiveness. Here's where grace gets pushed aside by every religion, including the Christian religion, right here. This is where the rubber meets the road, right here. We will remain saying to the world around us, you ask forgiveness, you ask too much. 
as long as we imagine that God. And we do that in two ways. Certainly to people that hurt us, if we think we have transacted with God, and that's why he keeps forgiving us, because we're good Christians, or we're this kind of person, or that, or that. As long as we imagine that's what's going on in our lives, then we won't offer forgiveness to others. And whether that's forgiveness to others who actually hurt us, or whether that's just moral policing, which the religious people love to do, it's the same thing. You're asking me to forgive something, I'm not going to forgive it. Because we believe in a God of transaction. This is why this parable is so challenging to us. See, this is what all the brutal language at the end of this parable is about. Right here. This is tough language. This is, this is how my Heavenly Father will treat you, each of you, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Brutal. That has to be challenged. But, this is not Jesus going back on everything he just said. At all. It's not an angry God mad that we do not forgive. This is the reality of our own choice condemning us to a life live the way we think life works. This is the reality of our own choice condemning us to a life live the way we think life works. Remember the parable of Minus and Jesus spoke what might be the most terrifying words he ever spoke? I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. Terrifying. Well, this is the same thing back here. This man did not know the king as a king of forgiveness, and so lived his life in an unforgiving world. The king gave up his claims to 60 million denarii. And this guy would not even give up his claim to 100. The king died so the servant could live, yet the servant would not lay down his life in even a small way so anyone else could live. He did not believe in grace, and therefore grace was not part of his world. The grace of God is a transforming grace. Please don't be fooled. Too often grace is understood as an anything-goes kind of live-and-let-live, who-cares philosophy. Nothing could be further from the truth. And everyone who thinks that's what grace means has never, ever met the grace of God. This is why I don't understand. I continue to get criticized for teaching nothing but grace. Because, well, grace is easy. No, there's nothing easy about grace. Nothing. Ernest Caseman suggests, when you get the gift, you get the giver who will not let you go your way. And Snodgrass asserts, God's mercy must not be treated cavalierly. Mercy is not effectively received unless it is shown, for God's mercy transforms. If God's mercy does not take root in the heart, it is not experienced. Forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. As Jeremiah and others correctly indicate, the parable teaches, Woe to you if you stand on your rights, for God will then stand on his and see that judgment is executed. Terrifying. Which is why I think a lot of Christians don't want grace. Because deep inside they know this is a much harder road than rules and regulations. 
Capon gives a brilliant and searching understanding of this very idea when he writes, The sole difference between heaven and hell is that in heaven the forgiveness is accepted and passed along, while in hell it is rejected and blocked. In heaven, death of the king is welcomed and becomes the doorway to new life in the resurrection. In hell, in hell, the old life of the bookkeeping world is insisted on and becomes forever the pointless torture it always was. There is only one unpardonable sin, and that is to withhold pardon from others. The only thing that can keep us out of the joy of the resurrection is to join the unforgiving servant in his refusal to die. Powerful. But it helps with the powerful language in this parable, doesn't it? Forgiveness is ours. We just have to receive it. Once received, we will pass it along. Grace transforms. Now please understand, and I want to make this clear, betrayal, abandonment, physical and emotional attacks on our persons or our loved ones are the worst moments of the human experience. We all know. That's why the hardest place to exercise forgiveness is at home and amongst friends and family because they're the ones who hurt us the most. Because it's just constant. And we so believe in transaction. We've talked about this 75 times last month. And you're still doing it. Therefore, I have every right not to forgive you because you just won't change. That's not forgiveness. That's not forgiveness. That's a transaction. And this is the theology most of us have been taught and raised with. And it's in our DNA from thousands and thousands and thousands of years of transacting with God. And we don't even realize we're doing it. Look at our culture right now. Us, them. Gotta hate. Fear, hate, fear, hate, fear, hate, fear. All that is is we're not forgiving them for being whatever they are. Because it's hard. When we are hurt, we get pain that is often without equal. And that confirms our conviction. Our rights have been violated and we're justified in seeking retribution and withholding forgiveness. This is very normal. It's very human. And I, I, I understand that. I don't want anyone to feel I'm pointing fingers. And the only one I'm pointing fingers at is me. There are certain sins, whether by quality or quantity, that seem beyond the respectable parameters of what is forgivable, right? Forgiveness is simply not a natural part of the human condition as we know it. So any mercy or grace humanity tends to offer is so calculated to prevent a recurrence of the sin being forgiven that I'm not sure it's even mercy or grace at all. It's just a transaction. And so it's easy to live into a world in which it makes perfect sense to say, you ask for forgiveness, you ask too much. But, while it may be extremely difficult to comprehend, the truth Jesus reveals here in this parable and throughout the Gospels is that the kingdom of God knows no such limits. And this is the good news. And this is the comforting part of this parable. This God who died in an amazing 
and radical display of exactly uncalculated mercy and grace could not possibly ever utter or even think that asking forgiveness is too much. There's the good news. And once we have that God in us, that grace truly received, and, by the way, not a one-time event, a willingness to receive it moment by moment in a profound awareness of the radical unrepayability of our own debts. No matter how long we've been a Christian or how long we have lived wonderfully moral lives, don't let that start sneaking in as, as we're transacting with God. We're never transacting with God. God never transacts with us. 164,000 plus years is not enough to transact with God in a piece of he just loves us. When we know that, we will start to live it out. We won't be able to not live it out. That's what's so amazing about grace. It might often look like a tango. Two steps up, one step back. Or sometimes, like with me, one step up, two steps back. But trust me, when we know we have received forgiveness, of a radically unrepayable debt, we will move in the direction of forgiving and loving others. Even if it's tiny. Baby steps. It will happen. And that's the thing you need to check all the time. Check your life. Who do you hate? Who do you think this world could do without? Who won't you forgive? If you're struggling because you know you want to, you probably have a great idea that you've been forgiven. But if you're not struggling with the inability to forgive, then maybe it's time to recheck in with God so you can understand, so we can understand how much we have been forgiven. Every single one of us has had a debt of radical unrepayability forgiven by God. Every single one of us is this servant owing 60 million denarii. Every single one. We can't pay it back. The good news is God's capacity to forgive is eternally greater than the greatest sin. His forgiveness is eternally more reaching than the greatest sinner's wanderings. So we can have courage and hope that is founded in one of St. Paul's more eternal insights. Nothing could separate us from the love of God. And that is what we celebrate every week at this table. What we celebrated this morning, the Eucharist is being thankful for what God has really done for us. That's what this is about. But in celebrating it, we enter into a very real covenant forged in blood. And now I'm thinking of the kid getting pushed off the side. We enter a very real covenant when we break bread. If we accept radical forgiveness from God, we will offer radical forgiveness to others. Let's not be like the servant. Let's instead <coughs> be like this incredibly wonderful, loving God.